Hello there, my name is Kathleen and this is The Osborne Tapes, the re-release of the Analyst Corner podcast with Debbie Osborne. Today's episode is all about geographic profiling and features Dr. Kim Rosmo, a legend in the field of criminology. Dr. Rosmo is a research professor with the Criminal Justice Department at Texas State University. He has written and contributed to countless publications, book reviews, and has been on several TV shows serving as an expert for geographic profiling. In this episode, we learn about geographical profiling and how it differs from other profiling methods and outcomes. It's an investigative methodology that uses connected locations to determine the most probable area of an offender. Debbie and Dr. Rosmo discuss how geographic profiling is used as an information management strategy and suspect prioritization tool to aid police investigations. Dr. Rosmo and Debbie go on to discuss the various tools that can be used to successfully create a geographic profile, including Rigel, software developed by Dr. Rosmo. Included in the notes are links to Dr. Rosmo's publications and trainings, as well as several videos from interviews and TV spots on geographic profiling. So be sure to check out the resources to access all of the most updated information on where geographic profiling is today. Now let's get into today's episode. Today's topic is geographic profiling. I'm pleased to announce our guest is Dr. Kim Rosmo, Director of the Texas State University Center for Geospatial Intelligence and Investigation, located in San Marcos, Texas. Dr. Rosmo is the author of the book, Geographic Profiling, and is a recognized trailblazer in studies related to the geography of crime. Hello, Kim. Welcome to the show. Hello, Debbie. Thank you for um, agreeing to come on. Um, some of our listeners will have no idea of what the term geography of crime means. Could you tell us? Well, the geography of crime is interested in where crime happens and why does crime happen in such locations. There's different uh, focuses. You could have a macro focus or a micro focus. By that, I mean how do crimes vary in terms of geographic regions, say, uh, are crimes higher in California than they are in Massachusetts or vice versa. And you can also have a micro-level perspective. In other words, if you take a look at a specific city, are there more crimes in this neighborhood than in that neighborhood? If so, why? What are the influences of the built environment on criminals and how they pattern their crimes? Um, and what are the influences on street networks, um, on other types of physical um, structures, you know, schools and shopping centers, um, recreational outlets, etc., bars, um, in terms of uh, how crime happens and where it happens and when it happens. So those are some of the questions that individuals who study the geography of crime are interested in. A lot of criminology focuses on the why, but the geography of crime approach takes a look at the where. And so you've dedicated um, a good portion of your work to the development of geographic profiling. And some people probably have seen you on television and shows um, that feature geographic profiling as a tool, but some people have no idea of what that is. So could you give us a little overview of what is really a somewhat complicated process? Well, geographic profiling is a criminal investigative methodology that uses the locations of a connected series of crimes to determine where the offender responsible for those crimes most likely lives. And let me illustrate that with an example. Let's say we have a serial rapist that's committed a number of offenses on the um, south side of a particular city. Every time the offender chooses a location to commit a crime, when he selects target, 
um, or breaks into a house, he's telling us something about him, something about his mental map, his awareness space for that city. Now, we can't say much about um, an offender from a single crime, but if we have, say, five or six crimes, then we start to be able to develop probability patterns and using some specialized software called Rigel, which is uh, used by um, police geographic profilers, we can input the locations of the crimes and it will give us a map, usually using various colors, to show us the most likely areas where the offender is based from. Now, you can't solve a crime with a geographic profile. You can only solve it through a witness, confession, or physical evidence. The role of the profile is to help police manage their information. So let's take our rape example. Investigators have DNA from one of the crime scenes, and so they can solve the crime if they can find the offender. But they might have literally thousands of potential suspects that they have to start wading through. Maybe everyone on the sex offender registry, everyone a tip has been called in about, um, anyone with a criminal record for something similar. So where do you start? How do you find that needle in the haystack? And the function of a geographic profile is to provide one way of sorting and managing that information, a way to prioritize uh, tips and to um, focus on the most likely suspects for further investigative follow-up. And what type of crimes um, would you apply to graphic profiling? Where, where do you have the most success? Well, generally what we want is a series of crimes. And when we began doing geographic profiling, uh, we focused on serial murder. Not for any special reason other than the fact that it's usually pretty obvious when a series of murders are occurring that one offender is responsible. Um, it's not always so obvious with property crimes. But uh, since that time, we've um, used geographic profiling for serial rape, bombings. We've used it for um, robbery cases. Now, a lot is being done on the property crime thing, particularly with burglaries, robberies, and arsons. Um, also, thefts. If we have a series of phone calls that say the offender made because we know um, where his cell phone was being used or he used pay phones or the offenders used a stolen credit card or a bank ATM card to make uh, purchases or withdrawals, we can examine those types of things. So it's really expanded in terms of the, of the crime repertoire, and we're now um, applying it or seeing it being applied to uh, counterinsurgency efforts in, in dealing with some of the IED or improvised explosive device problems that the military are facing in the Middle East. And, and so... Um, some police agencies have individuals trained in geographic profiling techniques and use the RIGEL software, but many agencies don't have this asset to um, focus investigations. And as someone who's interested in developing the profession of crime analysis and intelligence analysis, I would, I would think that the public would want their police agencies, especially in larger cities, to have this tool, why, why, why should they have it? Well, geographic profiling can actually save time and money. Um, and I would say we probably have individuals from over 100 different police agencies now trained in Canada, the United States, uh, Great Britain, and Europe. The um, best way for me to illustrate this, I think, is with an example the Irvine, California Police Department had a series of burglaries, which they 
called the Chair Burglary Series. Um, been going on for probably a decade, 10 years. And the um, estimated loss, it turns out, was something like a million dollars a year. They had made several efforts to try to apprehend the offender, usually by trying to catch him in the act. All of those had failed. It's very difficult to catch a burglar breaking into a home. Uh, a crime analyst by the name of Lori Velarde um, took a look at the cases. First step was to do a proper linkage analysis. She then constructed a geographic profile, and she went out with the detectives to take a look at the homes that were being broken into and decided that probably what the offender was doing was coming into the neighborhood and casing things um, on foot. So the goal of the profile was for the police to identify license plate numbers for individuals from outside of the neighborhood. Um, she also figured the most likely time period and day a week when the offender would be operating. Um, the surveillance efforts were um, put into place, and the very first night they identified a vehicle that was a rental car. Um, surveillance of the suspect actually led to his arrest, committing burglaries, and DNA linked him to some of the crime scenes. So the total amount of money that recovered was um, substantial, and they also stopped the burglar responsible for a very large amount of um, crime with, with a huge property loss. Uh, um, you know, it was happening on a regular basis. He seemed to be um, active about once a week on average. So if you take a look at that one case and the amount of money that was saved, it, it was really significant and far outweighs any um, uh, investment in, in the intelligence and the analytic resources to do the profile. So um, that was maybe a more dramatic case, but the bottom line is crime is very, very expensive when you actually add up all the costs associated with you know, a burglary or a robbery or especially something like a rape. Um, and sometimes police are um, able to catch the offender quickly, but often it's um, more difficult in the whodunits. Um, and that's why police need to have adequate um, analytic and intelligence resources so they're making the, the best use of uh, their investigative and their patrol resources. So was the million dollars the loss to the community of valuables, or was that the cost of police services combined? Oh, that was strictly the um, loss from theft. In fact, um, the police recovered half a million dollars from the nearby pawn shop from the offender's home at the time of his arrest. So that was just what was present at that time. They estimated he was responsible for 140 burglars, burglaries over three years, um, and according to his girlfriend, who had been pawning jewelry, she said he'd been active for about 20 years. So at an estimated average loss of a million a year, that certainly you know, adds up very, very quickly. And that doesn't factor in the cost of the 911 call for the police to go to the burglary site, or staff to take the report, investigate the crime, that costs the citizens' money, too, that we, don't, we can't measure, but again, over the long run. Well, there actually are a ways of estimating those costs. Um, there are studies that have been done that um, try to determine the impact of um, crimes 
on both the victim, which is our the direct costs, and then the indirect costs, such as hospitalization costs, lost work productivity, police and court and incarceration costs. So um, you can look at such studies, but uh, the, the bottom line is crime is very, very expensive. Right. I was looking up some figures. Um, the rest figures for 2007 aren't in for the Uniform Crime Report that the FBI produces crime in the United States, but in 2006 there were 2,183,746 burglaries in the country and 304,801 arrests. And so we have a lot of serial burglars, and um, some studies have indicated that chronic burglars commit like say 40 burglaries a year some of them I'm not do you have any numbers on well I, I know that um, when I was with the Vancouver Police Department um, some of my colleagues arrested individuals who confessed to 200 burglaries a year um, we generally find that a small number of offenders are responsible for a disproportionate amount of uh, crime so easily 10% of our offenders do half of our crime and those numbers are actually higher when we look at things like sex offenders, probably 5% do 70%. So um, you might have the individual that does one or two burglaries in a year, but you also have the individual that's doing a burglary every week. And, of course, those are the ones that we're most interested for geographic profiling because they're serial offenders. But police agencies aren't always effective at establishing links between them. Some agencies don't bother to ask the question, what crimes might be linked? to this particular crime I'm investigating now. And when you don't ask that question, you're sort of like doing a jigsaw puzzle, but only taking a look at one piece at a time rather than seeing how all the pieces can fit together. And you, you were speaking when you were talking to Lori Velarde and Irvine about linkage, case linkage, and how, how do um, individuals go about linking cases when they don't have DNA or they don't have other physical evidence? How do we link cases and decide that there might be a series of crimes? Well, there's generally three ways to link crimes. One, one is physical evidence, which you mentioned, DNA, fingerprints, two marks. The other is description. So we have a sex offender and the victims can provide a description or we have a series of bank robberies. We have photographs or videos so we can take a look at um, the offender, how the offender is dressed. The third way is through an examination of crime scene behavior, which includes both the modus operandi and also um, what's called signature, which is sort of rare events that are typically seen in sex crimes, sort of unique behaviors the offender does that are fantasy-based and not required for the actual commission of, of the crime. But the trouble is signatures are rare, and many modus operandis are general in nature. Now we can also link crimes by the proximity in time and place to crimes that occur close together and both in terms of the physical distance and in the temporal um, spacing are more likely to be linked. But um, we really have to take a probabilistic approach where we look at a number of factors and then decide how unique these various variables are and then come up with uh, more sophisticated methods of linking crimes than what we do right now. It's been my experience that tactical crime analysts who regularly do this become quite good at it. In other cases, it just isn't happening because police agencies aren't 
um, considering the question aren't gathering the data necessary to to link the crimes. It's an unfortunate fact that probably about 95% of the information police agencies collect are not accessible to that police agency. So that can make um, analysis more difficult. But we know a lot about criminal behavior and it is possible to at least come up with reasonable estimates if we're willing to ask the question if police agencies have put the resources into place to provide analyses and if the, the mandate um, has been established that um, these types of things are done on a routine basis. I think the British are very good at linking crimes. Um, they have a lot of analytic support for their investigators. It's more variable in North America. Um, as a former analyst who primarily used in tactical crime analysis, I, I totally agree um, what an example might be that an officer doesn't put on the crime report that um, that a, a, an attempted rape occurred in an elevator, and let's say there's a few more in the city, but you don't. They're in. They indicate it's an elevator in some places. In other places, they just have the address. And it, it's easier. The more data that's collected about a crime and the modus operandi, the the more likely someone could link the crimes. But it is the role of a crime analyst in many agencies to, to perform that, to look at the whole city or whole jurisdiction and look for those patterns. Now, uh, uh, your work has been featured on television related to serial killer cases because we're, we're um, as a society, more interested in, in the drama. And, and in fact, of course, serial killers do commit a terrible, terrible type of crime. But how many serial killers would you estimate there are in the United States right now? I mean, I know you can't know if you didn't find them, but there must be some studies that that have some estimate. Well, early estimates were actually probably quite high. They were in the thousands, and they were later debunked. Second round of estimates, you know, suggested maybe about 30 at one time, but I think the answer is probably somewhere in between. We're finding more and more serial killers operating that prey on marginal groups such as prostitutes or the homeless or um, other disenfranchised elements of society. So we, we don't even know that we have a, a killer in place. We just may have a number of missing people. And if the missing people are um, on the fringes of society, then you know no one may pay much attention. Um, it also becomes a bit of a problem deciding, you know, what do we mean when we say a, a serial killer is is operating? Because we'll see cases, a good example is the BTK killer. Uh, another one is um, the Green River killer, who did a lot of crimes, a lot of murders, maybe for a year or two, and then they virtually stopped, um, not completely. You know, they might have gone from uh, four crimes or five crimes a year to one crime every ten years. So a better estimate might be how many of our murder victims are um, the result of someone who's committed more than one murder. My best estimate, conservative estimate, is that in a year in the United States we have at least 200 victims um, that were killed by serial murders. And and so police agencies might think, well, I don't really need geographic profiling because I don't. The, the risk of having a serial killer in my community is low. Yet, for example, in the city of Buffalo, we might average 
between um, 300 and 380 burglaries a month. And so a mid-sized city would benefit from using such a tool um, for not only burglaries but sex offenses and other types of crimes. Um, So I think I'd like to stress that for listeners that just because we don't have um, the the murder lurking and that we don't know who it is in our city, we could still use these specialized tools. Well, we have two levels of ge- geographic profilers. Um, one is a high level of training to deal with, with a large variety of crime, including the murders and um, the rapes. And those individuals, there's, there's probably only about a dozen of them. But you can obtain services from those agencies uh, that have such capability usually just by requesting. So, for example, in the United States, the ATF have that capability. Um, in Canada, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. In Britain, it's the National Crime Faculty at Brams Hill. So it really doesn't cost the agency anything to request that service. And you're absolutely right. A smaller agency is not going to have um, the volume of activity in terms of the serial violent crimes. On the other uh, other hand, though, we have a um, different capacity, and we, we actually provide two-week training courses in different parts of the United States um, where people are trained as analysts to do geographic profiling for property crimes. These are the, the burglaries. These are the robberies. These are the arsons. These are the thefts. And because 90% of all crime that the police record in a year is property crime, this is where we're seeing a lot of activity. And in the example I gave you of the chair burglary series in Irvine, there is a, um, a, a sufficient um, impact that can be made um, in terms of stopping property loss. So what, how big would a jurisdiction have to be then to justify getting someone trained up to the level needed to investigate burglaries? or to link burglary cases and to use geographic profiling effectively? Well, it really depends on the level of crime an agency has, but generally I would say 100 sworn officers would be um, sort of a cutoff level in terms of having enough crime to uh, make the investment worthwhile. Because, as you said, 100 agencies might be using it, but we have over 15,000 agencies, law enforcement agencies in the United States, so you're not reaching the audience, all the audiences that could actually use your tool. Um, no, but, but in the United States, you have kind of a pyramid shape for agencies, of which there's many, many, many small agencies. I think according to the IACP, the International Association of Chiefs Police, the average size police agencies in the United States is uh, you know, something like less than 20 sworn officers. Um, so, but but you're right. There's we tend to find saturation in certain geographic areas. California is a good example. In other areas where there's very little saturation, um, so there's yeah definitely room for growth. And you you've recently um, done some work, a project on writing about investigative failures. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Yes, this actually has a relationship to geographic profiling because when I was doing a lot of casework and consulting um, during my time with the Vancouver Police Department, you were asked in on cases to do geographic profile that obviously that had not been solved. And in some cases, there were certain patterns that the 
agencies would fall into where they um, focused on one lead and they sort of missed some other opportunity. And uh, many detectives are quite forthcoming about explaining this. And over the course of time, I became interested in how investigations fail. Now, failure of a criminal investigation could be an unsolved case, um, the Jean Benet Ramsey case, for example, in Boulder, Colorado. Maybe it's an unsuccessful prosecution that should have been successful, like the O.J. Simpson case in California, or in the worst example, a wrongful conviction case, where somebody is um, arrested, tried, and convicted for a crime that they were innocent of, and then DNA proves their innocence. And I did a lot of reading, a lot of research, and eventually put a presentation together, which resulted in a couple of articles published in the FBI Law Enforcement Bulletin, and now um, in a new book that's coming out in November, published by Taylor and Francis, called Criminal Investigative Failures. And there's sort of three areas that um, I looked at. One is cognitive biases, like tunnel vision, focusing on on the wrong suspect too early and refusing to uh, change your opinion even as new evidence develops. The other area is organizational traps such as groupthink, um, refusing to challenge the dominant theory um, even if you disagree with it, especially when you have issues of status or rank involved. And the third is errors in understanding probability, which can occur in both forensic science and in profiling and have sometimes resulted in some um, egregious um, injustices. Um, well, we look forward to seeing that book. I know on my show description for this particular show, I have um, a picture of your book, and if reader, if listeners click on it, they could read some more about your geographic profiling book, but I look forward to your new book. Um, as you know, I'm concerned about the development of crime and analysis and policing. What do you see in the future for that, for that well, possibility? Well, the most expensive cost for any police agency is personnel. So that means that it's incumbent upon police managers and executives to make sure they're using their personnel, whether they're investigators or patrol officers or um, lab scientists or clerical um, individuals or support staff in the most effective and efficient manner possible. And one way to achieve that is through both strategic and tactical crime analysis. If you take a look at the military, the military have no shortage of analysts. And police agencies sometimes have been um, a little scarce in that particular resource. And by um, taking all the information that we do collect, making it available, making sure we're collecting the right information, putting on computers so that it's accessible and, and um, easily manipulable, then, and then having the analysts to turn out actionable products, then we're going to see policing become a lot more um, productive. There's a, a saying uh, that I came across a number of years ago, and it goes, um, data, information, knowledge, action. So the idea is that you want to take your raw data, you want to extract information from it, distill knowledge from that information, and then base your actions on the knowledge. If you're basing actions on data, then you're going to have a problem. Um, and so you've been using um, some of your techniques in the military to study IEDs, and you also have been working on illegal migration profiling. Can you tell us a bit about that before the show ends? Sure. We did some research on 
the geographic features along the Texas-Mexico border where illegal border crossers um, uh, preferred to cross the border. The idea to identify both the human and the physical geographic fe features um, where such individuals saw the borders being the easiest to cross, the most porous. The idea is to help the Border Patrol anticipate where individuals may go to if they crack down or they do something like build a wall. And as for counter um, IED, improvised explosive device or counterinsurgency experts, um, sorry, counterinsurgency efforts, uh, well, if you place a bomb, really, you're not that different, even if you are insurgent, from a common criminal in some of the um, challenges that face you. So um, the research to date shows that they um, follow very similar patterns and geographic profiling can be an effective tool under the right circumstances for counterinsurgency efforts to try to determine where the IED bomb makers may be located. A um, couple of other things we're doing. One is uh, we're just finishing a study on the geospatial structure of terrorist cells, uh, giving some idea of, of what those look like. And then finally, we have a couple of papers published and a third one submitted looking at how geographic profiling might allow us to understand the foraging behavior of animals. And we've studied bats and bees and great white sharks. Um, and ultimately, we would uh, like to see this apply to mosquitoes and malaria, uh, because sometimes um, anti-malaria efforts involve spraying uh, water supplies, but some of those water supplies may be nothing more than a rut in the road that's filled with rainwater. And, it's not going to show up in any map. By having some idea where to focus, um, what might be the source of um, malaria-bearing mosquitoes, then we might be able to assist epidemiological efforts. So it sounds like there's wonderful potential to use geographic profiling in all sorts of public safety efforts, whether it's health, national security, homeland security, and and as my interest in community safety, public safety. And, and I really appreciate you coming on the show. The time is pretty much up now, and I thank the listeners for joining us on Analyst Corner. Stay tuned for more expert guests and best practices in crime and intelligence analysis and policing. Again, thank you, and stay safe. Thank you, Kim. Uh, you're welcome, Debbie. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.